Look, of course I know I'm never going to interview Mozart or Bach. That ship has sailed (laughs) a long time ago, long before there were podcasts. But every age has its masters. And my guest today on the program, well, he's one of them. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. is the music of my guest today on the program, Steve Hackett. Let me tell you a little bit about Steve Hackett. Well, Steve Hackett is indeed one of the true musical masters. The London-born guitarist got his start in two short-lived bands, Canterbury Glass and Quiet World. But his tenure in Genesis is what catapulted him into the spotlight. Hackett played on six of the legendary band's albums, including Nursery Crime and Selling England by the Pound. Oh, and don't forget The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. He left Genesis in 1977, and from there, Hackett put out a series of adventurous, innovative, and dazzling solo albums, including Spectral Mornings and Bay of Kings. Now, I was a part of the MTV generation of the early 80s, so when Steve Hackett first showed up on my radar... It was with the supergroup GTR in 1985. That's how behind I was. GTR was Hackett, Steve Howe from Yes and Asia, and Marillion's Jonathan Mover. Oh, and don't forget singer Max Bacon. Their hit, When the Heart Rules the Mind, was everywhere in 1985. And though the band was not really around for very long, I mean, they only did one record, the song remains one of the most indelible singles of that year. Hackett's influence is vast. And just to give you an idea of who his playing inspired... Let's throw some names around. Queen's Brian May, Russia's Alex Lifeson, and Eddie Van Halen have all name-checked Hackett as a massive influence. As for his playing, look, I'm no musician. So getting into the technical brilliance of his revelatory use of two-handed tapping and sweet picking, that stuff's way out of my lane. Actually, if that's in your lane or not, you have to admit, it's hard to quantify what Steve Hackett does in a way that feels accurate. So let me give it a meager shot with this. Steve Hackett plays with dexterity, depth, and finesse. His precision is almost supernatural, and his command of his instrument is peerless. He's a big fan of Bach, and he'd probably think I'm overdoing it by saying he's like Bach, but he is. He's a master. He's an innovator, and he's one of the great composers not only of our time, but of any time. He's Bach-like 
for sure. His new album, Under a Mediterranean Sky, is an all-acoustic affair, and it's a straight-up stunner. It's elegant, it's lush, and it's utterly riveting. And so is this conversation. Here's me and Steve Hackett having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I, I tell you what, I often think that uh, uh, practicing and, and, and writing needn't be separate. They don't have to be, what's the word, mutually exclusive. I think that I, I, um, I often find that um, it's a good thing to say to yourself, why practice when you can write? You might actually come up with something uh, more than a mere scale or um, something that merely flexes the fingers um so you might come up with something that's um truly wonderful and can be just as virtuosic as any practice um so uh i've i've never really separated the two out when it comes to live there's no way around it you, you've just got to go through the obstacles until you can surmount them like a sportsman yeah you've just got to get over those hurdles haven't you you know um but uh yeah i'm 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 fighting human memory at the moment you catch me at my most human um but um it, it was always like this you know you're always you're always slow until you've got got muscle memory you know once you've got it there it's 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 actually not the uh, it's not the moves it's not the runs it's how you stitch them all together consecutively in fact uh, uh, a friend of mine, um, a violinist, Christopher Warren Green, who's a great virtuoso, said, he said, me, all a virtuoso is, is someone who can stick together a whole bunch of tricks. That was his, his take on it. And, mm. uh, and then the great Henry Miller, talking about another writer, he said, he's like, like a virtuoso, he's he learned it all. But the difference between a, a, a virtuoso and, and a composer is immense. You know, that's a, that's a quantum leap. And I'm probably misquoting him, but it's the idea of you've got these various levels. Um, there are some people who say, and, and I was talking to you know a really fine concert pianist who was saying, yeah, Tchaikovsky wasn't a good pianist. Um, and so, yeah, perhaps wouldn't win hands down in, in the race, but the master composer, it's part of his, his bag of tools technique is part of it but perhaps he's not a slave to it so that's that's where i'm coming from i'd rather have a good tune at the end of the day rather than you know bulletproof technique um i i, I would subordinate that in in favor of having um Good music. Where does uh, an element like improvisation come in artistically? That that doesn't happen on stage, or does that happen in the bedroom? You know where you're practicing. No, it depends what genre you're improvising in. You see, um, I've worked with people who improvise around blues, and I've worked with people who improvise around um, 
other changes. Um, the kind of gypsy jazz type stuff. That's that's a different kind of kind of uh, improvisation compared to you know jazz, which is uh, very much concerned with changes and going with them. Um, unless you're talking about free jazz, um, it's 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 very it's very different, and it tends to be more modal. It tends to be based on on drones, um, and um, it's practically Gregorian, but moving a hell of a lot faster. Um, <laughs> it's very interesting. You, you you come across these different genres and people who are, who are masters in them, um, but they've all come from different schools, and you take what you want and you leave behind what you what you don't want. Um, uh, when I worked with Roger, you know, he's had rigorous training in um, various things. But I think when I worked with you know, Rob Townsend, he, he, he is is the jazz master who really knows his his stuff. So people have different um, different strengths, different fluencies, different currencies. Where, for you, creatively, are, are do you find the most surprises? I think in writing, I, I think I, I find the most surprises, and um, I think I think the best thing is is to try and surprise yourself and try and work in within the unfamiliar. Um, uh, if I manage to come up with any any new idea or any new harmony, I, I'm uh, I'm usually, I'm usually thrilled with that. How do you know to follow that? In other words, when you find something that creatively feels unexpected or surprising or interesting, mm-hmm. is that enough for, to make you follow it, or are you are you so disciplined in your craft that you know, oh, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't follow that one, or, you know, what what do you, how do you know which ones to follow into the into the darkness? Well, I think, um, for instance, I've got. A- Tuning on uh, on guitar uh, on on nylon guitar uh, that um, uh, gives me a minor chord and um, every shape I play is a surprise so it forces me to uh, into areas of the unfamiliar and um, uh, I'll be trying to play that in 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 in, in a non guitaristic style most of the time. I'll be thinking of um, this sounds a bit like keyboard or, or keyboard or sounds a bit like harp, um, and I'll be thinking, oh, you know, I wonder if this can um, this can work uh, with orchestral textures. Uh, but I'll be working in in the in the area of the of the unfamiliar, and um, I can thrill to that. Um, yeah, this particular tuning, it takes the 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 um, the, uh, the low E down to um, down to D and the A down to G, and then the other big surprise is that my second string goes down one semitone, and um, um, I remember playing this to to. Um, to another guitarist at one point, and, and he said that it all sounded very Spanish once you'd done that. It was very death in the afternoon. It was very, um, very somber, very severe, um, and almost Russian. Um, 
uh, you can use some familiar shapes with that and they can sound um, impossibly good. Um, it is a great tuning. I don't know anyone else who uses that. Um, it helps to have some right-hand technique to be able to um, really get the best out of it, I find. When he pointed that out to you, did that did that surprise you? Did that note surprise you that he said that? Um, it, it did, but in a way, um, I could see that, that this guy was thrilled with it. And normally when I show it to another guitarist, they're absolutely thrilled with it. I think, oh, never thought of that. Look what I can do with this. You know, I can do different things. I can do jazz changes. I can do... Um, uh, I can use open strings. Other times you can bar A with it and um, uh, uh, move around. And it, it's um, it's just magical. It's 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 really really great. Um, and then sometimes I I take that tuning and deliberately play in a major key with it, which is a little more difficult. But again, it forces me to operate in in, in areas of the uh, of the unfamiliar. Um, and um, I haven't looked back since I've come up with that one. I've used it a little bit on the beginning of Genesis Revisited Number Two, uh, where I started off with a with a, a, a Genesis tune, um, a Chamber of Thirty Two Doors, and um, just before it to set it up, I did this fast, arpeggiated stuff, and. Um, um, I guarantee that most guitarists wouldn't be able to tell a single chord that I, I was playing on it, um, but it helps to helps to set it up for the, for the, the song that we we did and and, and, and re-recorded and had uh, uh, real strings on it. Um, uh, the Genesis version had um, had keyboards that were um, really interesting sounding but you know they are of the 1970s RMI piano and Mellotron strings were then to have the real thing that that you know echoes the spirit of that but takes it takes it further and makes it far more lush and makes it go Panavision the combination of the two uh, from from soloist to um, oh here comes an orchestra um, and we we took the opening um, uh, chords or the opening chord, I should say, and uh, we also reversed it, so we had it playing backwards and forwards at the same time, so you had the enlargement of the orchestral texture plus enlarged again because we were playing the same chords uh, uh, backwards and forwards at the same time, so it's really, really very big and very, very lush and works uh, just for a, just for a maybe um, one or two seconds, but it, it's absolutely lovely you get this kind of crescendo at the beginning as it becomes very very rich and i think really it, it's it's about contrasts uh you get the soloist something small and then you get something very very big which in a sense i guess it's typically progressive but then uh classical music has been full of this the art of surprise is is is, is what we is what we seek all the time all of us the orchestral setting for these songs has it revealed nuances of the compositions that uh not that you didn't notice but that maybe sort of brought to light new elements that um uh, that you could flesh out oh absolutely yes i think um um i think you've only got to listen to um uh Ravel orchestrating 
Mussorgsky and um, and you and you hear stuff that is uh, just wonderful. Um, something that sounds like it was always written for orchestra, and yet it was so low piano stuff, and and it's really miraculous when you think of what he what he did with that stuff. So um, that's the challenge for all of us. Again. So that that's that that's the big one for me. How do I make this work with? How do I I, I I transpose something from one instrument to to another or to a to a group of instruments and um, and still have the, the music uh, retain its integrity? When you wrote those songs, when you wrote those parts, yep. you were a, a young man, very young. Yes. And yes. which makes me think that their complexity to me. Uh, indicates that your discipline as a player, as a young guy, I mean, you must have really, yep. I, I mean, when you look back at it, what, what's your feeling about, wow, I was, you know, in my early 20s or so when I wrote those. Um, yeah. What, what's your take on looking at yourself, you know, compositionally from all those years ago to now? Um, I think um, I used to take quite a lot of risks um, at that time. And, and when I go back and revisit the mindset, um, um, I think by, by comparison, um, when you spend a lifetime um, doing shows, you tend to know what's going to work in front of an audience, a live audience, and you tend to all orientate towards things that are most robust. I mean, we did that as a band. Uh, we knew that certain songs probably wouldn't work in front of audiences, and we, we tried them out, and we found out the hard way that... Um, um, lots of little tingly sections, although they might be very beautiful, um, don't always engage a live audience, whereas the bluster of, of rock as we know it, um, uh, the tyranny of volume works wonders with audiences. <laughs> um, <laughs> whereas you know, little fragile things that might be um, uh, potentially little little masterpieces. You you need a very indulgent. You need a classical audience uh, for that. Um, and so um, I think perhaps there was more experimentation, and you tend to go for sure, more surefire bets uh, uh, the older you get. Um, I think that's the, the difference between uh, uh, then and now. But then that's why I continue to do um, acoustic work, because I know that that forces me to um, move away from that, that tyranny. And, and it leaves me just with the music, just for myself. And um, I, I need to integrate these two things, these two separate approaches there's one approach where you you um you're going to terrify people with loud rock stuff you're going to hit them with a storm um and then the other side of it you think well how do i integrate all this other stuff that's infinitely more subtle but perhaps there's a place for that too and I hope that that will be just as engaging for an audience. So these 
these sharp contrasts are what this genre hopping is all about. When you think about the the risks that you were taking, do you attribute that to sort of you know the fearlessness of youth? You know, at the time when you when you sort of were taking those chances, was it just sort of like, oh, what the hell? Let's just see what happens. Um, I think I think so. Yeah, I think I think there's everything to do when when you're young, and uh, nobody tells you that you can't. Um, but I do force myself to be, you know, place myself in unfamiliar territory. Um, so I still do take risks, and I often play with with bands. Um, where I don't really know what's going on, but I'm feeling my way, and I'm pl- I'm trying to play something of, of 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 relevance, particularly when I play with with the Hungarians, because they're like like a sort of crossroads, not just Europe, but with um, you know people that they work with uh, from Africa and Azerbaijan, for instance, uh, working with the Tar Malik Mansurov from. Azerbaijan, uh, it's like working with someone who is a cross between Ravi Shankar and John McLaughlin. He's complete mastery of his instrument, this tiny little instrument, and yet it can be so evocative. That's what starts off the latest album. Um, uh, and then, you know, we we twin that with with cymbalum and. Um, I have worked with sitar on on, on the album. I, I tend to like to work with with virtuosos who are, who are perhaps better at that than than me. Whereas in the early days, um, I might you know pick up a koto and uh, see what I could get out of it myself. Um, I wasn't bad on it back in the days when I was doing spectral mornings, uh, the koto. Um, but I did push myself to do things that that I think. Um, a really good player would be able to do so. I wasn't very accurate with it, but I would do a number of takes until I got it right. Um, uh, at the end of the day, yes, you could spend your life becoming a virtuoso koto player, or indeed learning to play the great pieces that Bach wrote so many years ago. But I think if you want to be able to sketch in a number of styles, you need to be able to. Um, waltz in and out of these different things to take what you want of it. I mean, for instance, if you just want to make a perfect record, you can do as many takes as you like. If you want to do a perfect performance, it's completely different. So um, the times when when I'm most tested, in a sense, is when I'm about to do a live tour and attempt to do the bulk of three albums. um, And... um, and it's it's a huge memory test, not just for me, but for the whole band. Uh, and I find myself thinking, um, yeah, must work harder, must do longer hours. And but it's it's law of diminishing returns. You, you know, you end up a babbling wreck, but you have to go through the babbling wreck stage, um, put down the instrument, come back to it fresh, um, allow yourself to fail. I think failure is very important, actually. Um, you can't, well, you mustn't underestimate the value of, of, of failure. Without failure, you won't, you won't stretch yourself. You won't, you won't push ahead. You won't ever do anything stunning. Um, otherwise, yeah, I could sit down and play blues all night, throw my head back, and do all that 
and I could love it equally, but then I wouldn't be varying things as much as as I as I do now. So um, I am actually better at it <laughs> than I was then. I've, I do have more technique now, and I've invented more technique since the days of tapping, coming up with that technique. Um, uh, that was... That was one thing. There are lots of other techniques that I've got. Um, in some ways, I would love to be able to show people some of the techniques I've got for nylon guitar, some some of the stuff for the right hand and and left hand, hammering on and off, for instance, whilst arpeggiating. So it sounds like two guitars. Um, <clears throat> sounds impossible. Um, it does. But it isn't. It isn't. Lots of things sound impossible until you... Um, until you work on them, and um, uh, people say to me, "How do you get so many notes all at once?" Um, uh, I don't know. Just by making lots of mistakes, and um, eventually shoring up something that, as I say, I wade through practice sessions, and um, eventually I find something that, yeah, this this sounds like a song. This this has graduated from a doodle to uh, a pencil drawing, perhaps, and then maybe we can flesh it out into into a um, into a portrait. By the time I hand it to other people, you know, other colours. Uh, that's uh, that's that's important. So I don't feel the need to play or be the front front line player on 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 everything I do. I mean, for instance, on the latest album, there's a track called "Those Golden Wings," and right at the beginning, it's it's an orchestra and. Um, I play a little bit on it, but I'm just doing the equivalent of light touches that uh, a, a harpist might do. Um, but it's got that kind of Russian ballet feel to it, that sense of uplift, and I I adore that. Um, it's one of the most gorgeous moments, and uh, uh, I set things in motion as a writer, but... Um, but it's important not to be the hero the whole time. It's terribly limiting, I think, to play heroically from beginning to end. Uh, very wearing for people, I think. Subtlety is just as powerful as the tyranny of volume. Oh yes, yes. Subtlety is 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 what it's all about. Yeah, subtlety. Yeah, anyone can play a power chord and deafen the whole audience. If you've got enough amps, that's all right. Nothing wrong with it. Hello, here comes the thunder god himself. <laughs> <clears throat> but will you, are you going to engage people um, in the same way that, uh, <clears throat> as I say, Malik Mansurov will play very quietly <clears throat> and thrill you with just how, how many trills he's able to do with this little sort of instrument, these little silver magic notes that he that he does um, and um, even his little tiny instrument can sound huge you know with reverb with it it's a little bit like the, the harmonica that little tiny harmonica by the time you you amplify it and um, distort it and use vibrato and and turn it into um, a cross between a brass instrument and a and a, and a guitar or a trumpet um, this tiny little instrument can uh, can flatten you like a ten-ton truck. It's just who's driving it. Who's uh, who's driving your truck there? 
do you think that, you know, musical cross training, playing other instruments, uh, informs ultimately what you do, say, on the guitar? Do you find that when you come back to the guitar, that yeah. something has changed? Um, yes, I think so. Um, there, there are many ways of looking at your your chosen instrument. Um, you can be playing an instrument all your life, and then you'll see someone do something, and you think, they've just reinvented that instrument. They've just driven the string in a different way. I mean, suddenly the, the arrival of the Ebo or or indeed even the humble tremolo arm or the sustainer pickup in the Fernandez guitars. Um, um, you would do well to listen to violinists because they have sustain and guitarists with their percussion instruments don't have sustain um, or didn't um, and relied on standing close to the amp or the amp head to trigger feedback, but it was very hit and miss. And um, even the best guys um, with that had to admit that you can only control that to, to a certain degree. But um, with the sustainer pickups in a in a Fernandez, for instance, you're you're in violin territory, you're in vocal territory, you're in brass territory. Um, and now, of course, you can use um, things that will change octave with that. So um, um, guitar is, is, is very flexible. I tend not to use guitar synths these days. I, I did quite a bit in the 70s and 80s. And um, I loved what it could do. But I think, like most guitarists these days, I... I have this idea that, that, that well, the guitar's a bit of a synthesizer anyway, so um, <clears throat> how can you get something out of that mechanical instrument? Um, how can you get the degree of control out of it that <clears throat> a brass player has, for instance, or a woodwind player? Um, so by using the distortion, applying it, taking it away, um, changing octaves, using um, various devices, and I, I am addicted to my my stomp boxes. Um, do you renounce Satan and all his stomp boxes? <laughs> answer, no. I will be that pagan heathen. I must, I must embrace all of these things, even though um, for a, a classical purist, a classical guitarist, you know, they would see all this as terribly profane, just the sort of things that Segovia wouldn't do. Um, and I'm not knocking the, the, the purity of sound and, and the infinite number of colors that someone like that great man was able to do with six strings on a nylon guitar. But um, I grew up in a different era, a different century, uh, the difference be between being born in the late 1800s and um, and being born in the 20th century, halfway through 1950, for me, um, um, means I can straddle you know, that kind of romantic playing and absolutely adore it for what it can bring uh, to the masses. Uh, but at the same time, um, uh, we grew up listening to Miles Davis and 
and uh, um, Jimi Hendrix and having that degree of anarchy that Ornick Coleman brought to the plot and John Coltrane and um, um, there are many different approaches to uh, to be admired I think and uh, to become conversant with those things to know them and to know what those people did, even if you think, well, I can't really use that, and I certainly can't use that today, but maybe tomorrow, maybe I can. Perhaps someone will ask me to score something at some point, and I'll be going, well, actually, yeah, the way forward might might be this. If you ever get to do any film work, sometimes a director might uh, ask for something that, that you might consider to be incredibly crass, but that might suit the scene, you know, something as rowdy as possible, um, or indeed portentous. Um, it, it all depends who's, who's setting the, um, the exams this week, really. Thank you.
what was it about people like Hendrix or Coleman? What was it that they were doing that that really sort of blew your mind? Um, I think it's a degree of fluency, and and it's it's the art of taking risk. Um, um, you know, H- Hendrix was a guy who was just an, as interesting when he was playing without a band as when he was playing with a band. You know, at times you can see the band standing back thinking, well, what the hell do I do while he's doing, you know, this particular this particular thing? He's he's going off on one here. Um, um, and I think, you know, or Nick Coleman, at least when I saw him live, it seemed like there wasn't a single tune um, but it was an evening when I, I was I was with other people, and, and I and I could tell that the that people who were non-musicians were finding it very very heavy going. For me, I could enjoy it just because it was um, so fluent and so full of energy. Um, a soprano sax, par excellence. Um, but some music, I think, is 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 not necessarily for um, for a huge audience. Um, some types of music um, uh, will thrill perhaps a small crowd. I think you have to indulge that. You have to say that oh, this is w- within me, and I will allow it to happen, even though I realise that. Um, for some people, they might consider this to be drilling on a nerve or it can be a bed of nails, uh, but it will work wonderfully as a sharp contrast with something that's very melodic and very tonal by by comparison. Uh, of course, you had all this stuff with with Stravinsky where the difference between Stravinsky and, and free jazz is that there's, there's an agreement. So you, a man can, can use atonal work and use as many clusters as he wants. Uh, but um, there's an agreement that at some point that's going to stop and something else is going to happen. Um, whereas, yeah, you know, what, what you're doing with free jazz, in, in, in a sense, is with a, with a band like that, you're unleashing uh, perhaps a stampede. Um, whereas, yeah, classical music has all this sort of stuff corralled. It's interesting to hear you say about where the music is performed as well, because, you know, like Sarah Vaughan w- yes. should, would never have played Glastonbury. Like that would have been right. ridic- preposterous. Yes. Um, and, and, I, and sometimes I do see people playing Glastonbury who I think probably shouldn't because their music yes. seems like it would be better for a smaller club. Yeah, um, sure. So, so that is a consideration. That is something to think about. Yeah, I, I think so. Um uh, I'm not sure that um, audiences the, sli- the side of, sli- sorry, size of, uh, of Glastonbury are ready for musicians um, to find their way who are, who are improvising, you know, who are uh, allowing the music to die in order to build it up again. But, you know, that's <clears throat> part of the raison d'etre of being um, a committed jazzer. When you were working with Peter when you were younger, was yes. how how in your head was he? Because he was such a, a complex, fascinating person, yeah. and, as, and as as an artist, such an interesting guy. 
when yeah. had the singer of the band at the time been Paul Carrick, would you have written yeah. differently? In other words, how oh, much yeah. did, did, did so Peter pushed you to be a different player? Well, I think you know the 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 band and the band's writing was the sum of everyone's influence. Um, Pete, I think, often <clears throat> approached vocals rather like an actor. Even before Bowie, um, you can hear it where he's um, he's living the song and he's personifying some idea. It might not be an ideal. It might be something that's as much out of pantomime and comedy as it is um, out of you know serious theatre as as we know it. Um, but then I think he had that ability to, to laugh at himself, and uh, I think it's a very rare quality amongst um, lead singers. Um, I do think that he was um, absolutely brilliant um, at that time, and I, I, I thrilled to the, the, the nuances, and I was able to um, influence that at times and he was uh, he was very open i think out of all of the band he was the most the most open and least prejudiced when it came to um ideas of a presentation and how we might do this and i could suggest a line here and um uh, just been working on on uh, uh, doing the battle of epping forest for instance it was it was a song that was on selling england by the pound and i'm going to do selling england in its entirety um, and um, I was talking to, to Roger King about it, and I said, well, what do you think of this song? Because, you know, we abandoned it as a band because it didn't seem to be right for audiences back then. He said, I think it's an absolutely brilliant number. Um, it's got lots of progressive changes, it's lots of scene changes, and I think um, no, in, in no small part due to uh, uh, Pete, uh, the the brilliance of of the song is the fact that um, he's doing he's doing uh, an impression of nineteen different people on it. You know, from from uh, violent characters to to camp to an English vicar, where he's got the accent absolutely right. It's something specific that the way vicars tend to or churchmen tend to pronounce their vowels. And um, and he's doing that, and 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 it's in a it's in a complicated um, um, time signature. Um, how is all that possible? You know, it's it's uh, it's seminal stuff. I don't know any other band uh, that managed to pull this kind of stuff off. You know, at times it goes. It's as if it's kind of ecclesiastical funk you know there's so many contradictions <laughs> going on uh, with with the thing um it, it, it's 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 very genesis isn't it you know um uh it, but you know there's the influence of of eastern europe in there and um in the same way that i think that um um americans were were influenced by by the european stuff um, um, I'm thinking of West Side Story. I'm mm. thinking of uh, of certain com composers uh, using time signatures.
uh, whereas you know Bartok was was using that. I've, I've noticed working with, with the Hungarians, you know, that they'll play anything in an uneven um, time signature, and and and, and uh, uh, orchestras they'll struggle with four four. Um, it's absolutely crazy compared to the rest of the world. But there you are, you know, it's um, something that uh, they grow up with. So um, um, I was working with 16-piece string section at one point where um, they were doing a song of mine called um, Jacuzzi. <clears throat> and um, well, it's got time signatures all over it, and they were reading it straight down, fine. And then I did uh, uh, one like um, Walking Away from Rainbows where it's rubato, you know, you're slowing down between phrases, but you've got to preempt <laughs> the changes at the same time, and they really struggled with that. So, um, um, <clears throat> something that seems very natural to me, they, they really struggled with. And you know, I was amazed at how, <clears throat> how fluent they were with this other halting stuff. Why do you think that was? What, what, what was the difficulty for them? I think it's because they were <clears throat> um, from a place called Miss, Miss Kolsch and um, they were a very fine orchestra, but you know, it was an academy. And um, of course, they will have been taught their uh, their Bartok and their Stravinsky and um, Kodalay and all, all all the rest, but perhaps be less familiar with uh, this romantic rubato style that was so um, uh, popular during during uh, the nineteenth century. And just the sort of way that, that Segovia plays, where you know, you tend to sort of um, slow down at the, at the end of phrases and allow allow the music to breathe and then come back with renewed vigor. That seemed to throw them. They seem to be less familiar with that, um, where I think that it requires um, people to be less slavishly addicted to what the baton um, says and how, when the baton comes down. Um, you need to be able to think on your feet to do a song like um, uh, Walking Away From Rainbows. Um, mm. I've noticed that it, it's very natural to some players and to others, it's, you know, they're completely at sea with that. Oh, shall I come in here? Shall I not? And invariably they hang back too long. And so I wait for the score to be established before I can come with my next phrase. So da 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 And please come in with the change for the next phrase. Da, 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 da. And if you don't, it's like da, da, big pregnant pause before soloist can do his thing. So, uh, and I think also young players, you know, achieve that degree of confidence when they've been around for a bit. So, um, young players can, you know, wait for permission a little bit too much. Where for you has always been a difficult? In other words, what's been difficult for you? As a player, what what place for you has always been the most challenging? In other words, where have you always been least comfortable um, compositionally? Um, I think um, writing for the human voice, singing with my own voice. But most of the time, people think of me, quite rightly, as a guitarist who happens to sing. And... Um, 
Um, I won't pretend that I have the most robust of voices, but uh, what I've discovered is that um, you can sing in many different styles. Um, I, for instance, I don't think that um, Freddie Mercury was really a rock singer. I think that he was um, probably an operatic singer and probably a ballad singer. And um, um, if your voice doesn't have that sort of natural uh, distortion, it can sometimes be very unpretty when you distort it. Uh, whereas that edge, you know, comes to certain singers who've got a sort of brass-like quality to them. But if you, if your voice is more of a reed instrument, um, then you've got other colours uh, to work with. And if you're going to tell the story, you have to operate in um, non non-rock areas, I think. So. Um, the new album I've done is a rock album, but I, I haven't distorted a single note of my voice on it. I've just allowed myself to sing rather than to scream. And um, funny enough, I was having this conversation with Bruce Willis at one point where he sings and plays harmonica as well as being a fine actor. And he said to me, well, I, I scream in tune that's my take on it. Seems very modest about his, his uh, vocal capabilities, but I think that a lot of um, actors actually um, sing and, 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 and play in bands. Uh, Kevin Bacon, I think, um, um, Russell Crowe. Um, yeah. And um, I was also talking to um, Steven Seagal, funnily enough, um, who likes nothing better than to play blues guitar? So, um, isn't isn't it a, a strange thing? You know that the sort of um, you wouldn't think that 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 actors of this stature, this level of success, you know, are, are sort of rock and roll wannabes. Um, why would that be the case? But I think that you know the two the two things are 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 linked. And um, a certain amount of acting is required of um, of all of us when we when we look at um, what what song are, are we going to do next? What 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 are we going to do? What's it going to be? Um, uh, what's the story going to be? And I, and I I find usually that um, it helps to have something in mind lyrically so that the music doesn't always come first for me. Sometimes I've got to have. Uh, the lyric, and then I'll be coming up with the most cliched, hackneyed musical phrase to support the lyric. But then I've got to dig deeper to find something else. And yes, you could do it that way, but you know, don't be a bastard. What you've got to do is to separate yourself off from your instinct, you know, your cliche-ridden instincts. And what you've got to do is to find some musicality in in here you know what how, how do you turn the game on its head and what would Tchaikovsky have made of of a, of a Chuck Berry song what would he have done with it 
Um, so I listened to both. I can thrill to both. I was thinking about Peter's theatricality and mm. what you were saying before about how he was so open uh, yeah. to ideas. And I wonder if that's because the performative improvisational element of acting would almost yes. naturally make somebody be very open to ideas. Well, I think so. Um, uh, I, at one point, um, there was an opera singer that I, that I knew and, uh, she was um, going up with my brother at the time, and um, my brother John, and her name's Maria Bovino, and um, and she said to me, "Oh, you, you've got this huge range with your voice. You can sing really, really high. That that's really, really good." And she said, she "said you know, you're singing." This is before I'd done any professional singing. She said, "Singing is all about confidence." Mm. And it's true, you know, I often find that, that people who say they can't sing, you know that they just haven't taken a sufficient lungful of air before they attempt the phrase. So it's already dead in the water. It's, you know, the mechanics of singing requires you to do that. Yeah, you need, you need, a, you need a fully loaded tank before you can drive that, that vehicle. Uh, so, yeah, fill up with a good lungful and then go at it. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned Mercury because talk about confidence. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? But then I, I think that he, um, this sort of aspect of cusping from being the very shy, gawky, ugly duckling as a kid to becoming this um, uh, rock and roll swan. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, a, a, a tremendous level of, of perhaps overcompensation on stage to be this this other persona that was a million miles away from where he'd come from. Um, so I can imagine he must have had a huge I told you so list. Um, it can be very, very motivating. I think that... Um, those difficult early years um, are what made for such a magnificent um, uh, uh, um, I was going to say performance but but it, but it's much much more than that it's um, uh, to be the outsider um, and to be gay on 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 top of it um, Double whammy in a way, isn't it? You know, ugly duckling, gay. I mean, how marginalised have you got to be before your, you know, before this other persona starts to happen? This uh, the process of individuation, as Jung might have called it, um, personified, embraced by him. He'd come a zillion miles. Um, it's just not the same animal at all, and. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I I worked a little bit with Brian May on a couple of different projects, and um, um, Queen came to a, it was a, a birthday party of mine, and I used to talk to them. Um, we were making an album in the same in the same studio when I was working with Steve Howard doing uh, uh, the GTR album, um, 
queen queen were in and um, doing stuff and I think that they were um, a unique a unique band um, characterized by I think those, those harmonies, vocal harmonies, but also the guitar harmonies. And um, Brian said to me, I'd been a huge influence on him, um, a musical box in particular. And um, I realized that, you know, at the end, um, I had an idea that I was going to do a three-part guitar harmony. The, the third part got lost because we were mixing the damn thing all night long. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, we'd had the same idea, which is, you know, to... to to have a guitar orchestra um, and um, uh, I had no idea I'd been an influence on him uh, I think that you know he was a master of, of harmony guitar there's no doubt about that um, nobody did neater guitar harmonies than than, than than that guy yeah when I when I listen to him I can hear the discipline he seems like a yes. real practitioner yeah, that's right. I mean, even to the extent where the vibratos are in time, um, when you've got those harmonies, he's he's thinking about that. So he's thinking like a like a um, like a guy leading a choral uh, group. Where I've heard people say, um, if you can get your singers to get their 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 uh, vibratos in time, I mean that's an extraordinary thing to get that. Uh, there'll be a rare vocal group indeed who managed to get that under control. Yeah. What was your take on a guy like Mark Knopfler? I, I, he's another guy that I always, I always loved in terms of I could hear the discipline in him as well. Yes, I think that um, I think as as, as, as lyricist, um, um, I think of him primarily as as a songwriter, and I know he's a fine guitarist, but for me, his Strength is as a a lyricist, as as a storyteller, um, and that just happens to be my take on it. And I think that's why um, people can um, take those songs and 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 uh, inhabit them and get taken to that world, as all great writers uh, manage to do. Um, the idea is that. Um, Every song is potentially a world unto itself, and uh, the listener is invited to um, walk within it, smell the air, listen to the birds in that particular song. That's the potential for every song is to be a, a, a world that is entirely sufficient and of itself, although there will be influences. Nonetheless, there'll be a whole um, magic that it seems to possess, a kind of relationship that it has to to itself. Um, um, yeah, something that's inextricably wedded <laughs> to itself. Right. There, there's a guy I know you worked with, Jeff Downs. I always felt that Jeff Downs yep. is an unsung hero in terms of yep. one of the most... I mean, I wouldn't say underrated because I think he's very respected. But what he can yeah. do in terms of telling a sonic story and building yeah. this architecture—what's your take yeah. on Jeff? 
You know what I think? I think that Jeff is getting better and better, to be honest, you mm. know. I think he was impressive in the early days. It was very nice working with him with GTR. Um, he and I hit it off. And um, and we see quite a lot of each other these days. Uh, we find ourselves on literally in, in the same boat at times. And, um, <laughs> and um, um, I hope to do more with him because I think that... Um, uh, I think that he's very talented and um, like all of us, you know, um, sometimes we have the, the public's ear and other times we have to um, crave their indulgence and and the media's um, uh, respect or scorn. You know, I, I, I talked to Tony Kay of Yes mm-hmm. and, and to a really mm-hmm. nice guy and, and he yes. seemed, you know, his attitude seemed to be like, you know, I've done the hard work, and I can just take it out, and I can knock it out, and then put it back away. Um, yeah. Which, which is, to- I totally get. But for you, you yeah. seem like you're still creatively pushing yourself almost harder than you ever have. I am, and um, I think that um, the passing of time um, makes me work harder. I think if you really love music. Um, you want to get as much out of yourself as you possibly can. Um, um, I can't fool anyone into thinking I'm 30. Um, Yes, that would be great, but then there's experience, and I think honesty comes with time. I think that if you're still involved in the business, um, you... It forces you to be an idealist. Um, nobody can sustain the level of success um, on an even keel, you know, ad infinitum. It, it's not possible. Um, there have to be moments where you could do no wrong and you can do no right. Um, yeah, of the old song, it's when you're hot, you're hot, and when you're not, you're not. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, you've got to be able to weather that. Um, I mean, even Bach had church elders on his back saying, you're writing stuff that's too complicated. Um, you're not doing it right. Complain, complain. Um, just imagine the, all these experts um, uh, but um, you've got to fight that. You've got to fight the inner and, and outer demons. Uh, you've got to survive them. You must um, have your helmet on. Uh, I think that that, that, that that failure is is um, is something that is a natural consequence of embracing risk. Uh, but without risk, you're not really going to be that explorer that goes to the equivalent of the musical Antarctic in order to bring back what you found. Um, so the outer reaches, yes. Um, occasionally, you've got to go full immersion in um, territories where you're completely un, unprepared uh, for instance when I worked in, in, in uh, South America many years ago doing the Till We Have Faces album um, 
I worked with a whole ton of different percussionists and they changed my idea of what uh, time was all about. Um, I became made aware that um, you could have something that was very, very busy. Uh, listening to a percussionist that had done something with a slow song and I thought, well, you know, yes, I'm giving him encouraging nods here and I'm saying, great, but what I'm really going to do when he's gone is I'm going to wipe his performance because it's ruined the song. And then um, I was told that actually this guy doesn't mean this to be loud. It's it's like the chatter in the jungle and it's meant to be played back very quietly. So you've got this backdrop that's almost like a wash and it's infinitely complex uh, sonically, but it is it is only meant to inform the music in in a in, in a small way. It's to give it an, an extra perspective. Now that isn't something that that I expect um, a rock drummer to understand or a jazz drummer, but nonetheless, because I went um, full immersion and and um, I realised I couldn't really control what was going on at the time. I had to learn from it. Um, it made me feel like an amateur, and I thought I'm, I'm being like a fraud. But at times, you've got to weather those feelings, those instincts within yourself, and say, well, I'm going to let this ride, because something's telling me I should, and perhaps the picture will come clearer later on. And I've had those moments, for instance, when I was doing Icarus Ascending with um, Chester Thompson and my brother and John Aycock and Dave LeBolt and... Um, and um, and others, Tom Fowler, and we were rehearsing, and we just came to these two chords at the end, and 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 I didn't. I thought I thought I won't let everyone stop. They seem to enjoy grooving on this, but how am I going to justify it in the end? And by the time we got Richie Havens in to sing on on the, on the song, he said, "Well, you know, at the end here, I could just improvise." And he came up with the most gorgeous, soulful, soulful stuff, and it was what that album was all about, you know. Suddenly, you know, the hour found the man who um, just flew with that melody, and um, and it was it was freeing, I think, for everyone. And so, um, I will always love that. It's absolutely beautiful. And then, right at the end, we used a tiny bit of what was going to be a synth solo, but I just used the reverb of it. And he said, he said, "What's that instrument? What's that instrument?" I said, "Well, that's the guy that." Is your keyboard player? That's is Dave LeBolt. That's where I found him. You know, he went on to work with with Bowie, um, uh, Dave. And um, um, he said, "Oh, I don't know what that instrument is." And um, uh, so, yeah, luckily I'd managed to reinvent that, and and and, uh, and Richie Richie had reinvented the song for me, and um, and and the, 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 these happy accidents happen. Uh, because you allow them to happen, you allow space, you allow things to potentially fail. <clears throat> you you said you felt like a fraud when you had that sort of percussive disruption. What made you feel hmm. like a fraud specifically? Well, because I thought um, I'm not writing. I'm I'm not being a band leader at this point. I'm not being a producer. I'm giving people so much rope. Um, I'm there. You know, I'm allowing them to hang themselves with this, but I'm frittering away studio time. But actually, 
I wasn't. It was the right thing to do. Right. Um, uh, something was telling me to do it, and you know, I've, I've got an angel on my shoulder and a demon on the other, and I'm torn between the two. Um, uh, but I've got to, um, I've got to allow myself to do it. Um, uncertainty can be extremely valuable. Don't always stick with um, with what you know. Yeah, that's sage sage uh, words, my friend. Um, I know I know I have to let you go, but I, I just wanted to say, sure. Steve, I, I certainly appreciate you you digging in with me like this. It's really a fascinating discussion. Well, thank you. I, I've enjoyed it too. When I started out, I was tired from rehearsals, but you were making me sort of dig deeper into you know what's really what what's under under this. What I'm look I'm thinking of what underlay what underlies there's no such word but it's what lies beneath um uh these things everyone can improve their technique everyone can um you know become polished with with the known world but um sometimes we just got to set off to sea and and if we fall off the the edge of the world because it happened to be flat then so be it um but you might just circumnavigate the whole of the musical globe. That's what I'm trying to to get to here. So I think to to visit the genres, uh, perhaps to visit countries, I think this is also important. Uh, I've done a lot of that, a lot of research with that, um, and the journey isn't finished yet, so um, long may it continue. Lovely guy. What a really, really nice conversation. I really enjoyed that. Who needs Bach when you got Steve Hackett? You can visit Steve online at hackettsongs.com. There are tour dates. You can order the album. Uh, There's other music to order as well. There's a lot going on at that site. Go check it out and see what's happening. There's some stuff going on at my site, but uh, most of what's going on, I tell you here. But I'd love for you to visit me there alexgreenonline.com. It's a lot of Alex, but you can handle it. I know you can do it. And hey, while you're at it, visit Bombshell Radio at bombshellradio.com. Find out what makes us tick. Yes, I think that's kind of cute. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. You can also email me, editor, at stereoembersmagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms, name one we're not on. I challenge you. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a rating. Uh, these, are the, these are the protocols, the digital protocols that will help us slowly but surely become an international sensation. And once we're there, I'm going to look down from atop the perch, the podcast perch that rules the world, and I'm going to say, Thank you, you over there. I really appreciate what you did all those years ago, and uh, you haven't changed a bit. You look as young as ever. See, I'll be flattering you even from the pedestal where I'll be ruling things from. That's the kind of guy I am. Let's close the show with a fuller listen to The Call of the Sea from Steve Hackett's new album, Under a Mediterranean Sky. 
Enjoy it. Thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio.